You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is a thriving metropolis of ocean marine life above and below the surface. So I have a great program lined up for you today. We have lots of guests in the studio and online to talk about what is going on to reduce the impacts to whales from large ships. And if you can imagine driving out here in the roads of West Marin, we constantly are um, keeping an eye out for uh, life, I want to say marine life, but it's not marine life, it's land life, uh, deer and other animals. And um, occasionally we have contact with cars and it's a sad thing. And the same thing is happening in the ocean. So we're going to talk a bit about this today. The entire coast of California is a migration corridor for many species of whales. And our California National Marine Sanctuary seem to be hot spots where these whales can be found in large numbers due to the food availability. But we also happen to be um, right smack in the middle of a very busy shipping area. San Francisco Bay has several um, ports with ships coming in and out of the area. So there's been some some, uh, interactions, and we're going to talk about that a bunch today. So I'd like to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'll introduce all our guests, and we'll be tuning in to How to Prevent Ship Strikes with Whales. Sorry, God's supposed to keep my eyes open for whales And sing out every time But I'm lost in the infinite series of the sea As the ship rolls beneath So roll on, deep in dark blue ocean, blue bottomless soul, roll on with me. As ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over the in vain, over the in vain, just roll on. Deep in dark blue ocean, blue bottomless soul, roll on with me, roll on with me. Great song to start us off on this show today. Welcome back. You're tuned to Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stuck. We're talking about whales and large ships today, and I'd like to introduce to you everyone we have here in the studio and on the phone, so I'm just going to go around and introduce everyone. Let us know you're live on the air when you hear your name. (laughs) So I'm going to start right here in the studio, and we have uh, John Burge, who's the vice president with the Pacific Shipping Association. 
Pacific Merchant Shipping Association and also a member of the Cordell Bank Sanctuary Advisory Council. Welcome, John, to KWMR. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. And Michael Carver, who is the Deputy Superintendent and Resource Protection Coordinator for the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Michael and I work in the same office. We are very close colleagues, so for full disclosure, Michael is here. And fun to see you your other office. There we go. You're three. I figured out the problem. I was putting up the CD player, John, so you should be on now. <laughs> there we go. And uh, Jackie Dragon, she's the senior oceans campaigner with Greenpeace, also a member of the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Council. Jackie, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here, Jennifer. Awesome. And then live on the air, we have John Kalambikidis, a senior biologist and founder of Cascadia Research, one of the world's leading authority on whales. And John, you're live on the air. Great. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. And Mike Van Houten, Chief of Aids to Navigation at District 11 Waterways Branch Vessel Traffic Service with the U.S. Coast Guard. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Jennifer. Good to participate. This is great. I feel like I'm running a little mini forum here on Mm -hmm. KWMR. It's wonderful to have so many guests here talking about this issue. So many people have been working on it. So I'd like to just start with John Kalambikidis on the air, on the on the phone. John, if you could start us off, just giving us some background about the use of the West Coast by whales, um, which whales, and the the population estimates and their history, and what some of your research has focused on um, here on the West Coast. You bet. No, that sounds great. And. Uh Our research has focused particularly on uh, three of the whale species that uh, come and feed off the U.S. West Coast, and especially in areas like Cordell Bank uh, and the sanctuary waters around it. And those are blue and humpback whales. And and they're both these large filter-feeding baleen whales. Blue whales are the largest whale and the largest animal that's ever lived. Uh, And blue humpback and fin whales are all endangered species. Uh, primarily because they were taken to very low numbers by commercial whaling. And we tend to think of commercial whaling as something that happened a long, long time ago, but uh, uh, whalers operated out of San Francisco Bay as late as 1966, hunting all three of those species. Uh, So that's within the the lifetime of these whale species they were hunted. Uh, My own research began in 1986 uh, when we began studying uh, at the behest of the the very newly formed at that time, uh, Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries to try to look at what large whales were using the waters, how many there were, and uh, what they were doing there. And since then, we've been tracking those whales primarily by identifying individuals. So we have over 2,000 different individual humpback whales and over 2,000 individual blue whales that we know from their natural markings. And from the annual surveys and what we call photo ID of those animals, we can track the trends in those animals and also where they come and go from. Uh, And it's been that research that's revealed that uh, the humpback and blue whales, at least, come to this area and spend almost half the year or more feeding off the U.S. West Coast. And the Farallones and Cordell Bank are primary feeding grounds for these animals. We typically see them arriving uh, in the spring to early summer and staying often through late fall. Uh, And it tends to be some of the same individuals coming back every year. Our population estimates of how they're doing are very encouraging for humpback whales. It showed them recovering at about 7% a year, so just in that 25-year period I've studied humpbacks, 
we've seen their population estimates increase almost fourfold, going from under 500 to now around 2,000 humpback whales along the U.S. West Coast, with quite a few of those coming to the Farallones-Cordell Bank area to feed. Uh, we've been troubled over the 20-year period by the lack of a similar increasing trend for blue whales. Um, and that's actually an element that got us very concerned and interested in the ship strike issue. Uh, and in the last, uh, since about 2007, so the last five years, uh, increasingly some of my work, especially some of the work looking at uh, what the whales are doing underwater, I, uh, I, every year we attach suction cup uh, attached tags to the whales to look at their underwater behavior. Uh, and have been doing that to gain insights to what they're doing underwater. But in the last five years, we've been starting to do more and more of that work in areas where there's busy ship traffic to also look at what the whales are doing in areas where they interact with ships, how they react to ships, uh, and also to gain insight on what might be some of the more effective means to reduce the incident of uh, ship strikes. I should mention our blue whale uh, population estimate is also about 2,000 whales for the whole U.S. West Coast, but that has not shown any increase. That uh, We were initially encouraged by that in the early 90s because that was a bigger number than we thought was there. But now I've become concerned that we've seen no upward trend in that, and, and there are even some indicators of the use of especially California waters by blue whales has decreased over the last 20 years, uh, and that's where kind of this ship strike issue has been a concern to us. So, and that really came to the fore in 2007 when there were a minimum of four documented ship strikes of blue whales in the Southern California Bight area in the fall. And that really was a wake-up call for many of us, uh, especially myself, because I knew that only a small portion of the whales that die actually show up on the beach at Stranding. So to have four of them uh, wash up at strandings that were struck by ships suggested there could easily be 10 times or many times more than that that are actually being killed. And that could be one of the reasons we're not seeing a recovery of blue whales from the depletion during whaling. Uh, just really quickly, I'd say there are a couple of other species, fin whales that tend to occur a little more offshore, and also gray whales that mostly migrate past uh, the kind of San Francisco area on route between their primary feeding areas to the north and the breeding areas to the south, though occasionally we get those animals feeding in smaller numbers in a couple of key areas like the Farallon Islands or more recently off Bodega Bay. Right. There was a fin whale that washed ashore in Marin County this summer, and our our uh, summer monitoring crew out there with PRBO Conservation Science and the Sanctuaries actually were the first to see it from the ship instead of from land. So that was pretty interesting. Thank you so much for that overview. That paints a really good picture of how important this coastline is for the whales and the recovery for the humpbacks has been really positive since whaling ended, but definitely not so much for blues. So I want to talk a little bit more about, let's just get right into it. And Michael Carver, as the um, resource protection person here at the sanctuary, you've taken, the sanctuaries have taken up a lot of concern about this with the blue whales lost in Channel Islands. I know the Channel Islands sanctuary got very actively involved in trying to figure out how they could work on this issue. But could you give us a little bit of an overview of what's been happening with the National Marine Sanctuaries and what are what are you trying to do and... There's been a of lot course. going on. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, as John was saying, in, 
since that event in 2007, when there were the blue whales that were um, came ashore down in Southern California, there was something declared, which is an unusual mortality event. And that was sort of the beginning of, of several efforts down in Channel Islands to try and get vessels to slow down and, and really look at sort of the scope and scale of this issue. Uh, and thanks to our advisory council uh, up at Gulf of the Fairlands and Cordell Bank, we also, um, around 2010, uh, picked up this issue and, and started figuring out what we could do because uh, the ship strike issue sort of spans the coast of California. And in, in Channel Islands, just to sort of go back to them for a minute, they do a number of things. They've made modifications to their shipping lane most recently. Uh, before that, they were doing aerial monitoring. They have a volunteer corps that goes out there looking at distribution of abundance of whales. Where are they? Trying to understand where is that overlap between ships and whales. Excellent. I'd like to bring Mike in real quick from the Coast Guard. And Mike, can you tell us a little bit about the shipping lanes in general? Who regulates them, oversees them, how they're determined, and are they reviewed? Are the lanes reviewed ever so once in a while? Okay. The Coast Guard has authority for establishing regulating traffic lanes. We call it traffic separation schemes under the Port and Waterway Safety Act. Uh, we look at facilitating the safety of navigation by establishing predictable traffic patterns in the approaches to ports along the coast. In the case of San Francisco, there's three approaches in the traffic separation scheme, from the north, from the west, and from the south. This helps balance the distribution of vessel traffic as they approach San Francisco. And we periodically evaluate that to make sure we're facilitating safety of navigation to see if there's also been any changes in vessel traffic patterns or anything we can do to improve safety of navigation. In the case of San Francisco, our most recent study began back in December 2009, and this was based primarily to look at the northern approach of San Francisco in an area of prime fishing grounds to look if there was anything we could do to improve safety of navigation uh, in the area of the northern traffic lane uh, with a high level of fishing activity there. And we also want to look at extending the lanes out further out would help to establish predictability, maintain predictability of traffic, and it would also conform to the limit of our vessel traffic service area of responsibility. We have a vessel traffic service in San Francisco that monitors vessel traffic. So we commenced the study back in December 2009. It ran for about a year and a half. We received a lot of valuable input from the public, from other government agencies, environmental protection groups fishing vessel operators and commercial mariners uh, about the, the uh, traffic separation schemes during the study. And as a result of that, uh, we published a port access route study report in June of 2011, which recommended several modifications to the existing lanes. And just real quick, uh, basically for the northern lane, it would extend the northern lane about 17 miles further to the north the limit of the vessel traffic service coverage area, and it would also shift the lanes away from the Cordell Bank, which should help protect blue and hump elk wells, and also we put a turn in the lane, which shifts it farther away from an area of special biological significance near Point Reyes. So it should have the benefit of facilitating safety and navigation and also helping to protect the marine environment. For the western approach, we shifted the lanes, or recommended shifting lanes, further away from the Gulf, from the Fairline Islands, and also extending them out 
another three plus nautical miles. And then for the southern approach, we recommended extending the lanes eight and a half miles to the limit of the VTS coverage area. Our report went to our Coast Guard headquarters office. They reviewed it, approved our recommendations, and then it went off to the International Maritime Organization in the spring of this year. And was uh, the International Maritime Organization meets once a year, the Safety Navigation Committee, and they have given preliminary approval to our recommendations. Um, they will also have another meeting in November to consider adopting the recommendations. And if so, they will schedule an implementation date, which is likely to be sometime summer of 2013. So with the November date coming, you're saying November this year, 2012? Correct. And is there uh, another public input process for that, or is that just an internal um, discussion of the recommendations? Or Well, there, there's uh, two processes. This is the international approval process. The United States went to the International Maritime Organization and made our recommendations. Uh, in addition to that, we'll also be conducting a rulemaking process because the traffic separation schemes are also included in the federal regulations. And after the IMO meets in November, assuming they adopt and schedule an implementation, we'll work on a rulemaking process uh, with a target, a goal of matching their implementation date next summer. So there will once again be an opportunity for public input. And I want to also stress that we had a lot of public input during our port access route study as we developed our recommendations. Great. Thanks for giving that overview. I can hear that this is a process that is somewhat independent of the National Marine Sanctuary's efforts, and it's great great timing that it's all kind of coming together. Um, John Burge, you're sitting right here. Tell me, how did you first, or when did you first hear about this issue in terms of the the uh, conflict with whales and shipping? Well, we probably heard about it. We probably heard about it much the same way you heard about it, uh, Jennifer, and that it makes the news. And uh, obviously, as you as you so well put it earlier, just like driving down the road, you don't want to hit a deer or any other wildlife. No one uh, moving a ship from point A to point B wants to run over a whale either. So uh, we realize this is an issue, uh, an issue of concern, and we needed to get fully engaged and try to find ways to, to mitigate that risk as much as possible. That's great. And Jackie, how did you were one of the people that brought this to the attention of the Sanctuary Advisory Councils, and you've been working on this issue for many, many years. So tell us about your process in terms of educating the all the parties involved. Yeah, absolutely. It's I think it's now been about five years uh, since I began working on this issue. Um, and, you know, for me, being able to be part of this effort with the sanctuaries and uh, as Greenpeace is a little bit of a full circle experience because um, saving whales is really part of our history. In 1975, Greenpeace launched the first um, anti-whaling campaign in the world. And now this many years later, uh, whales and our oceans, unfortunately, are under threats from all kinds of uh, modern issues besides just whaling. And that, of course, includes overfishing, entanglements in fishing nets, uh, 
ocean noise pollution, which we were also getting at in this effort, and then ship strikes on whales. So um, as a conservation group and a member of the public, uh, I was able to come and do something that was very special, that really um, it's, it's a rare opportunity um, that the sanctuary advisory councils offer, which is a multi-stakeholder uh, opportunity that includes the public and an opportunity to come forward and say, this issue is important to us. And we thought sanctuary seemed like areas where whales should really be protected and be safe. And then to come and really realize that here in the Bay Area, we have this unfortunate co-occurrence of three shipping lanes running right through three national marine sanctuaries. So it seemed very serious to us. And I am actually, you know, really have uh, to commend the sanctuaries and the advisory councils for taking this issue on and prioritizing it and to be able to be part of a group that really I think is kind of a model of stakeholder involvement that brought together equal parts uh, of the conservation community, the scientists, and the industry to put our heads together and find some solutions. And I think we did uh, quite a good job and came away with some very ambitious recommendations. Fantastic. Thank you for that overview. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stock. We're talking about what the sanctuaries are doing to work on reducing the impacts to whales from ship strikes in the, in the area. Michael, can you give us a little bit of an overview about the process the sanctuaries took? You were saying about the working group being established. This was introduced to the sanctuary advisory councils. They said, yes, we want to work on this. And you then got wrapped up in Wales for a year yeah. and just resurfaced again. So tell us a little bit about this process. Who was involved of, as a participant? And of several course. of your panel people are here on the phone and in the studio. So well, you can bring them into it, too. Sure. Uh, you know, to be honest, I, I was sort of humbled throughout this experience because the caliber of people that volunteered to help on this working group who flew in from around the United States to offer their expertise was, was somewhat unprecedented. And being place-based we're in a very unique situation to solve problems in a collaborative approach, which is the point of the working group. Uh, but you don't always reach consensus. So it's, uh, but by the end, we were able to uh, put out a 40-page uh, document, which were a set of recommendations that everyone was able to endorse. Uh, which, and so represented on that working group was uh, industry associations, captains, uh, scientists from the Marine Mammal Center, and a number of technical ex experts. Uh, all the uh, panelists who are on the, this program today uh, participated. And you know, over the course of a, a half dozen meetings, we worked through various topics brainstorming and then trying to work out the details in um, different strategies we could do to mitigate the risk of, of ship strikes to whales. And one of the most obvious ways is decreasing co-occurrence. So as Mike Van Houten was talking about earlier, we were able to find a solution um, that not only ensured maritime safety with the placement of the new shipping lanes, but also um, insured or safeguarded uh, whales by decreasing that co-occurrence of where ships and whales go, particularly along the shelf break, where we have dense aggregations of whales, uh, narrowing the traffic lanes, extending them beyond that shelf break, uh, it sort of decreases that co-occurrence. Another um, area we focused on was something called a dynamic management area. And this is a tool that hasn't been used uh, on the West Coast yet. It's been used on the East Coast, and that is to request vessels when there is a dense aggregation of whales to either slow down in that lane or divert to another lane. And this was an attractive solution to John, how would you couch that for industry? You were open and receptive to that 
that solution? Uh, well, yes. I mean, obviously, we have the conundrum of these three shipping lanes and a huge amount of uh, trade going in and out of San Francisco with whales out there. And so uh, we tried to find a, a solution that would, as you put, uh, Michael, reduce the co-occurrence situation of whales and ships in the same in close proximity. Mm-hmm. At the same time, try to facilitate the fact that these ships do have to get in and out of San Francisco Bay. Exactly, it's sort of the the brass tax realities that we live with, and and one of the other is is trying to gather good data. And so one of the recommendations was to establish a voluntary sighting network. That is leveraging all those folks that are out on the water, whether on a whale watching boat, the commercial ships that are going through the area, to report back to the sanctuaries where do they see the whales? Because we can't be out there every day. We do have a robust monitoring program, as you were talking about, access with PRBO Conservation Science. They go out, they run, you know week-long, 10-day cruises, counting everything that's out there. But we really wanted to sort of crowdsource, leverage the community. So to do that, one of the things we're doing is we're collaborating with EarthNC, which is a local company that creates uh, applications for smartphones and tablets. And they actually created a a whale alert app for Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. And we're working on one for us on the West Coast that will allow users to enter information on where they see a whale, and it'll go to a database where the sanctuary can take that information and inform a dynamic management area. Um, John Kalamakitis, if you're still with us on the air, I hope, um, how do you see these recommendations in terms of the likelihood that these could help the whales. You've been working with these whales for years and really have a good sense of the dynamic nature of the ocean. So how do you how do you feel about the recommendations? No, I feel great about it. I think the first step that uh, uh, Mike Van Houten uh, referred to of changing the shipping lanes uh, was a key first step. Uh, but it could only go so far because it could only address uh, what we consider to be the you know predominant consistent areas whales tend to use, but we struggled with how do we um, modify some of the kind of both speeds and routes that vessels take in a more dynamic uh, mode, given that every year where the whales are concentrated and even through the year tends to change depending on the oceanographic conditions and where that's produced the best abundance of krill. Uh, that both bluefin and humpback whales all feed on, or sometimes swooling fish that humpback and fin whales occasionally feed on, and that can move around a little bit. And uh, what Mike was referring to of um, how to um, uh, uh, how to uh, inform that kind of ongoing changing level was the big challenge. Uh, and I'm real excited about this kind of second step, which is this dynamic management area he described, uh, and how how we can sort of modify where ships go. And one of the ways that it looked like ships could modify where they go is by uh, selectively changing the speed uh, guidance that were provided. And I think we'll go into more detail shortly, but basically there are elements of this that uh, put either a speed guidance or a speed restriction, depending on whether we move from a voluntary into a mandatory mode uh, on one particular lane where whales are concentrated based on these sighting reports that have come in. Uh, and, and vessels would then have a choice of either using that lane but using it at a slower speed or using a different lane, and we're hoping that's the choice that they would want to take uh, and use a different lane and that way get that separation. 
so that's kind of, I think, the most innovative uh, and both both challenging and innovative part of the proposal that this working group came up with uh, that now has to be implemented, which is uh, how to maintain these uh, this information system and get the information we need uh, and have ships be able to respond and shift based on these shorter-term patterns to get that secondary benefit. And, and, you know, one part of this is really can we get the industry and the ships themselves to become major participants in the reporting of whale sightings? Because while some of the whale watch trips and uh, fishermen go out to certain specific areas uh, to fish or look for whales, uh, no other platform than ships are the ones traveling the exact areas we're concerned about, the shipping lanes themselves, uh, and traveling it on multiple trips per day, you know, and at a level of effort that we could not ever really achieve with even a dedicated research effort. Uh, so getting the industry involved in that and willing to participate in that is going to require quite a few things, the training of people on ships, the willingness of ships to participate in this and maybe occasionally have someone on board to help train their staff on how to do this, how to get the reporting mechanism to work, uh, the description of the application of uh, the different techniques that might be used for how to report those sightings back to a central location and act on them. Uh, So a lot of that is what's still ahead of us to be uh, determined. We have kind of the the very skeletal outline of a plan that the working group came up to, but a lot of the details of trying to implement it uh, still lie ahead of us. Thank you, John. And for those tuning in, you're listening to KWMR 90.5 Point Race Station and 89.9 Bellinas and live on the web at www.kwmr.org. You're tuned to Ocean Currents, and we're talking with several experts about reducing impact to whales um, from ships. John Burge, I have a question for you about this. This is an enormous industry about how many ships come in and out of San Francisco Bay and how many ports are in the bay. Uh, it's, I didn't know there was going to be a test at the end of this. But, <laughs> about, about. <laughs> um, there's probably about, uh, oh, say, five or six major ports <clears throat> in the in the Bay Area. Uh Certainly, Oakland is the busiest port. You have a number of other uh, oil terminals. You have the Port of San Francisco, which is primarily cruise ships. Uh, but uh, in, in all, there's about a little over 7,000, um, I would say, deep water transits, uh, vessels that would be uh, under, the, uh, under the control of the U.S. Coast Guard and Vessel Traffic Service as they come in and out. So this doesn't close include fishing boats, things like that. So... That's about uh, 600 a month, about 20 a day. <clears throat> and when you kind of uh, parse that down, uh, you know, it works out to be with three shipping lanes, uh, if they were being getting equal use, it's about six, seven transits per day through each of those lanes. Um, interesting, there, there has been a shift recently for some obscure reasons, which I won't go into right now, where about half the vessels are using the western lane and the remaining 50% are split between the north and south. But uh, that, that gives you an idea of the number of, uh, of vessels coming in and out. So, yeah, it is a, a huge endeavor. But I would like to point out that we uh, who have been involved in this are actually very excited about the potential for ships to be used as a, as a tool to provide better data in terms of where 
the whales actually are. Um, quite often in the past, uh, when there's been management strategies to try to reduce ship strikes on whales, uh, they've primarily been based on kind of historical ideas of where the whales are at a certain period of time. So it just seems like a, a no-brainer that if we can develop better data that provides really more accurate, dynamic information about uh, where, the, where, where the whales are specifically uh, within a, a small <coughs> geographical area, that we can probably end up with better, more uh, productive management strategies. I'm curious. I, I'm, I can imagine that being on a container ship is... I mean, it's like this huge, huge thing, and I'm wondering, like, I think you could probably see a blue whale blow. They're pretty huge. But a gray whale blow? They're tiny little puffs. I'm curious, John, or any of the others here, if there's research on the sighting abilities from these container ships in terms of, can you actually see these whales? And I think that is uh, quite a challenge uh, uh, in, from almost any platform. And, and right from the start, I would say we've got a couple of huge problems. One, one that we recognized early on, especially when we found out that blue whales especially were spending a majority of their time near the surface, much more at night than in the day. And we came to the realization that hmm. probably how they're distributed at night might be even more important than exactly where are they in the day, given that they're spending this higher proportion of time at the surface. Uh, and all of our sighting data, of course, comes from the daytime. So that's one huge hurdle we have. And then there's also periods of time when uh, there's poor weather, there's fog, there's high wind conditions. Uh, so we do have enormous challenges with, with sightings of whales and knowing their distributions at the right time, even with dedicated surveys. Now, the, the ships have some advantages in that they represent a, a nice, high, very stable platform height. So that's kind of in their favor, and it's off, often superior. I typically work in a 20-foot boat right at the water level, and I'd love to be high up like on a ship, and you can actually see much farther. But then they also have some critical disadvantages. They can't see the area right in front of the bow. It's often obscured by containers. Uh, they're not necessarily trained observers, though many mariners take a great interest in, in wildlife, so they're, they've made themselves familiar. And they also have primary you know, responsibility for other duties that don't involve sighting whales other than if it represents a, a, a threat to the ship. Uh, so we do have those hurdles that exist. Uh, but I think, by and large, the large ships, despite their disadvantages, are probably our best and most reliable and most frequent option for getting sighting information, but but this is a big a big issue for us with uh, whale sightings uh, being problematic at night and in poor weather. Sounds like it's at least worth the effort. I mean, might as well try anything at this point. Um, Michael, yeah. you have a question, and I also wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about the effort on the East Coast. Of course, I'd be happy to. I just wanted to get back to what we were talking about with the application for a minute and sort of tie it into the uh, observations on the commercial platforms. For the listeners, uh, we were talking about an application where users on whale watching boats and, and fishing and whatnot could enter where whales are. And one of the other components of that is the same database will be able to be emailed by someone on a commercial ship. And we've been in conversation with our sister organization in NOAA, the National Weather Service, who get 
observations on weather from mariners. They actually have had a very robust and long-lived program on voluntary weather observations. And so utilizing that same interface for mariners to be able to give us information on whales, uh, we're very hopeful to be able to uh, sort of capitalize on that work and merge these two uh, sort of data streams, one from commercial, one from sort of the smaller vessels. and can you give the example of the East Coast? I know that at Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary outside Boston Harbor. Yeah, that's exactly right. So off of off of Cape Cod, the Stellwagen has been working on this issue also for a number of years, and they put in. Uh, they have a slightly different uh, solution to the problem. They have right whales out there that are, uh, also were getting struck by ships, and what they did was put in a number of listening stations, which listen for whales. Then once they're in the area, they upload that information. Um, and it is broadcast out to mariners so they know when whales are in the area. We considered this option in our working group um, because it's very attractive. Uh, it's all sort of automated, and it doesn't require sort of the engagement of the, the public. It just all works. But because of the, the difference in the up calls, and John, I'll let you speak to this, but, um, and also the huge cost, it was, it was not an option that we sort of thought was viable. John, do you mind talking a little bit about the difference between the up and down calls of right whales versus blues and humpbacks? No, you bet. Uh, and I think, you know, especially for blue whales, there's been quite a bit of work done on detecting their calls, and certainly detecting calls of blue whales has been valuable in research. But uh, as part of these studies where we attach tags to blue whales, uh, we discovered that it was really just a few blue whales producing lots of these calls, and it was primarily males when they were traveling were producing these calls. So it it actually didn't turn out to be a great indicator of the areas of feeding concentrations. Uh, there was another type of feeding call that <clears throat> that blue whale male and females did produce, uh, but it's, it's still not produced in very high numbers. So we would actually find we'd be at an area where there'd be 40, 50 whales feeding, and you'd actually be detecting very few acoustic detections. Uh, so we just realized it was not a very good indicator of localized concentrations, especially of feeding uh, blue whales, unlike how it's used for right whales. And, and humpback whales, you have sort of a similar uh, but slightly different problem in that humpbacks are known for these long, complex songs that they produce, and they, the males, again, vocalize at a very high rate, but they do so primarily uh, during the breeding season, and they'll do it in areas like the Farallons but primarily in spring, early spring and late fall, you know, the time periods closest to that winter breeding season. And again, just detecting humpback calls wasn't a very good uh, option for tracking these two particular species and where they might be concentrated for dealing with how they might be vulnerable to ship strikes in a particular area. Excellent. Thanks, John. So next steps here, it sounds like there's been several um, potential actions put on the table, and these were just presented this past summer, 2012. So, Michael, what are the next steps with evaluating the the potential to act on some of these when the challenging budget times that we have? And, the boy, we have a whole bunch of staff at Cordell Bank, a total of four. Um, <laughs> well, you know, first off, I have to look to my right and, and thank John Burge, the industry, and Pacific Merchant Shipping Association. They helped fund sort of to get us started with uh, gathering data. And that, you know, sometimes it just comes down to funding. And 
between um, the industry and, and Pacific Merchant Shipping Association and uh, in-kind services from EarthNC, we've been able to sort of move forward on our uh, voluntary siting network. And that will really help not just us at Cordell Bank, but the, all the sanctuaries along the West Coast and really help get that data we're after. Um, and some of the other things we've done is we've, you know, we sat down with the Coast Guard and the industry, you know, other partners, the um, Harbor Safety Committee meeting, bringing them up to speed on the recommendations uh, and talking through what implementation would look like. Uh, because while we did have a working group which had broad representation, um, it's a large community. And so right now we're working with the other partners and the Coast Guard is, is a significant one in uh, implementing these recommendations. Okay. And Mike, I'd like to come back to you for a second, but Jackie, you said you wanted to add something to that. Yeah, a couple of things on this. Um, first, um, the the cost, as Michael uh, puts out, is really significant. Uh, I'm very excited because we now really have this train on the track. We've had um, whales and ship strikes really going on for a long time, but now we're really bringing together all the players to start gathering this data and coming up with some really great creative solutions. Part of the problem is, though, that they do cost money. There's a high uh, 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 cost to implementing each and every one of these things. So uh, it's exciting to have um, the participation from the shipping industry and the funding that they are bringing to this. Listeners, I think, also I would encourage to write to the sanctuaries to say we're ha happy that you're doing this and we want to see more of it because, as we know, funding gets cut from the top in Washington down every year. And if we want resources to be able to continue to go to efforts like this, they need to hear that we care about this. Um, you know, this working group began actually because I was looking at ocean noise pollution. And as it turns out, um, at this point, the oceans have grown very, very noisy. We have uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 ships in our global fleet that are traveling um, across the oceans every year. And we all depend on that commerce, you know. So it's not going to stop anytime soon. And if we're lucky enough that we're increasing the numbers in depleted whales, such as our endangered blue whales, we're only going to have more and more of this problem. And particularly in our national marine sanctuaries, those are areas where we need to start learning about that noise. If the ocean's just getting noisier and noisier, that creates a kind of a, a smog for whales where they're not able to hear. And for them, it's all about sound. It's an acoustic environment. If they're going to be able to find a mate or navigate and locate their way, it's about being able to send and receive signals. So we actually have recommendations in this working group that are about acoustics and that include things like being able to have passive listening devices in our sanctuaries. But right now, we don't have the political will and the juice behind it and really, frankly, the dollars to be able to implement it. You have a lot of people, um, certainly everybody that was engaged in the working group that would love to get it going. And we had, as Michael said, some of you know the smartest people, the experts that were bringing us the latest science, the best available data to work with. But we need to be able to have that juice to be able to carry it forward. So I'm excited that we've begun, and this is an opportunity to let people know that we're on the right track, but we need to keep it moving. That's fantastic. And, Mike, I wanted to bring you back up, too, talking from the Coast Guard perspective. You mentioned earlier the whole port access route study that was was um, helping to shift lanes a bit, but also what are some of the Coast Guard's positions on some of these recommendations, and how will the Coast Guard stay engaged through these next steps with uh, the sanctuaries and NOAA fisheries and, and the whole working group process? Well, I want to say, and I should have mentioned earlier, that NOAA was very helpful, uh, particularly Michael and the Cordell Bank, 
during our study providing valuable information on whale density areas. Also, John Kalmikidis and everybody on the panel today was very helpful with our study. So, also having attended a few of the work group meetings, I were very interested in the uh, issues they're working on and, and continue to collaborate where we can to help. Uh, once again, our focus is on safety navigation, but also helping to protect the marine environment. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mike. And um, we have about about just less than 10 minutes or so, and I just wanted to go around in terms of ways for place, uh, people to stay involved and up-to-date on information regarding the next steps. And, Jackie, you mentioned a really great point about Sanctuary Advisory Council meetings. Um, with these are a couple times a year, four or five times a year for each sanctuary, and there are public comment periods, and the public's always welcome to attend. And for Cordell Bank, ours are usually be at... Uh, PRBO Conservation Science in Petaluma or right here in Point Reyes Station at the Red Barn Classroom at the Point Reyes National Seashore. And we have a meeting coming up, I think, next Thursday. This Thursday? Well, for us. Gulf of the Farallons has a meeting this week. Where is that? Um, We're in Half Moon Bay. We move around the sanctuary. And just to give a pitch for public comment, um, for me, in bringing this issue up north, you know, I began actually when I started working on the shipping noise issue, attending the Channel Islands uh, Sanctuary Advisory Council meetings where I learned quite a bit, and they were doing some great work down there, again, prompted by uh, all those uh, deaths of blue whales. But it was that public comment period, just that uh, three minutes uh, in the middle of the meeting where I was able to bring this issue up to the the folks uh, at Cordell Bank and at the Gulf of the Farallons and kind of bring their attention to it. They're working on many important issues uh, to keep our sanctuaries safe and clean and uh, really healthy and also um, uh, give access to all the many users that use the sanctuaries. Um, They, as I said, have very limited funds to be able to do all the work that they do. So it was um, really um, wonderful to be able to show up at that public comment and say this is an issue that um, we as public stakeholders as conservation organizations think is is overdue because, you know, it, it's not uh, unnatural for us to be used to something like shipping traffic coming in and out of the port. But, in fact, um, it is something that needed our attention, and it's not going to change if we don't create working groups like this and bring volunteers and the public together. So uh, I do encourage people to use that outlet and, again, to make sure that the sanctuary knows that it's important to them. Um, one other point is that our... Um, recommendations back to the sanctuary also included uh, education and outreach. So another piece of this, besides just, uh, you know, the folks that are out on the big ships or the actual mariner vessels keeping their eyes out and knowing where whales are, is the general public having a better appreciation for what we're doing and supporting it and knowing how they can also interface um, when they're out on a boat and seeing whales and be able to bring that information back. So that's also there. Yeah, there's a great opportunity with the number of whale watch operations in San Francisco that are going out and the naturalists getting up to speed on the issue and communicating about it. And Cordell Bank, we have one little field seminar every year to get out there. Um, How about uh, John Kalamakitis? Do you have any last words in terms of ways to stay engaged in this issue, what you'd recommend people to do to stay up to date? Well, mostly I want to echo what Jackie said. I I do think, uh, you know, you've heard from uh, some people with the Coast Guard and uh, NOAA sanctuaries that, uh, and the industry that are extremely involved in this issue and have been really responsive. Uh, but by and large, uh, really, uh, for them to be able to keep having the support within their agencies, I mean, we really need to keep the pressure on because 
there, th- this is a lot that's being asked, uh, both of the industry, uh, but also multiple agencies within the federal government. Uh, and so you've got a lot of uh, inertia and changes that need to be made, especially some of these innovative changes being proposed by the working group. Uh, so I really do think, uh, you know, the NOAA, both sanctuaries and uh, NOAA fisheries, uh, that is responsible for management of marine mammals, uh, and the U.S. Coast Guard and the shipping industry. I think uh, all of us, whether we're researchers or members of the public and care about whales, have to keep uh, kind of pushing for them to stay engaged in this issue and, and moving it forward. Thank you. And Mike, any, any final comments in terms of comment periods for the Coast Guard and the, the studies that you're, you've been mentioning earlier? don't have too much chat at this point, Jennifer. Um, our Coast Guard headquarters office will be managing the implementation at this point, but we'll definitely be engaged uh, with them and with the people showing an interest in our efforts and our study, uh, preventing co-occurrence of uh, shipping in whales and also safety of navigation in the lanes. So I don't have a specific timetable at this point, but we certainly want to stay engaged with everybody who has an interest in it. And I believe these will at least be probably, they'll be announced at the Sanctuary Advisory Council meeting. So those will be available through the constituencies that are sitting at those meetings. So that's that's great. Thank you so much for participating today, Mike. You're welcome. And John, how about you? You want to add anything in terms of uh, ways to stay engaged on this issue, information that we can keep up to date on? Well, it's it's a great question. We We are obviously very engaged and committed to this, as I think all the stakeholders are. Uh, that being said, it's it's quite an ambitious project ahead of us. <clears throat> you know, we we developed this plan that was adopted uh, this last summer, and quite often you develop a plan like that and it gets a lot of attention and a lot of coverage, and then for the next year or two when you're actually doing the kind of more boring, pedantic work of actually making those things come true, uh, it tends to get kind of lost in the, in the background noise. So I think it's incumbent upon all the stakeholders, NOAA, the sanctuaries, uh, the conservation uh, in groups, uh, our, our own industry, to make sure that the general public kind of gets a good idea of, of the progress we're making because, um, you know, shows like this is just a great example of how you can do that. But, uh, but I think we just need to keep, keep it in the forefront. Fantastic. Thank you, John. And Michael, any last words in terms of websites? And yeah. we've got those councils plugged really well for, <laughs> we want to see our public participation get up there, stand up a little bit more. But. Well, a plug for our, our wonderful website, I'm going to say, if you go to cordellbank.noaa.gov forward slash protect, there'll be a section on chip strikes. And you can read that and it'll take you to our national website, which has a lot of information. We put that together after the working group uh, as our first effort to try and educate the public about the issue, what we're doing, various management strategies at different sanctuaries. Um, So I really encourage you to go there. And if you don't remember that uh, URL, you can just Google sanctuaries and ship strike and it'll come right up. And in addition to that, I just want to underscore to the folks out there, get out on the water. Go on a whale watch. See these animals. They're amazing. That's great. I know it was pretty exciting this year. We had blue whales right off the coast of Point Reyes Beach. And yeah. I have to say one of the best days in the office when we were told we're going to go see the be- the whales. It was awesome. Um, really, really special to see them so close to shore this year. And it is a phenomenal experience. And we're getting right to gray whale season here. So yeah. that'll be wonderful. 
Well, I want to thank everybody that is participating today in the studio and on the phone for joining me to talk about this issue. And um, I definitely encourage people to stay tuned and we'll definitely let everybody know of any meetings coming up where there'd be more information shared. But thanks again for everybody coming on. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you for holding the show. Wonderful. Well, thank you. We're going to take a short break, and I'll be back in a little bit with just a little bit, a few more announcements. So please stay with us. You're listening to Ocean Currents. There may be shoals of whales on the far horizon, but I'm too lost. Just an absent-minded youth out to sea. Spend with my thoughts every strange half seen gliding beautiful thing eludes me so roll on deep in dark blue ocean blue bottomless soul roll on Ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over thee in vain, over thee in vain. Just roll on deep and dark blue ocean, your blue bottomless soul. Roll on with me, roll on. Dimly discovered uprising, thin seems to me the embodiment of these elusive thoughts that flit through my soul. In this enchanted mood, my spirit ebbs away like the tide and becomes diffused in time. to pull that song down because it's so beautiful. Miss Lynn Walsh, a friend of mine, wrote that song. Uh, She lives in Fairfax. I hope she performs it every once in a while. But uh, we just had a really great overview of what's happening here in the sanctuaries with trying to reduce the impact to whales from ships. I do want to just give you a couple announcements before we close out the show. And um, you've heard me talk a little bit in the past. The Cordell Bank Sanctuary has been working with the Oakland Museum of California for a while now, developing a really great big exhibit that will be permanent. And we have a couple sneak peek previews this fall where you can see it. And then it will be closed until the grand reopening in June 2013. And the the days coming up are uh, November 11th and December 2nd. And December 2nd is a free day for the public. It's a free day for anybody. So it's a great chance to see the exhibit with your family for free. November 11th, there is for a fee that day, but it's open the exhibit. So anyway, November 11th and December 2nd, you can go to museumca.org. And there's just an incredible, I'll just give you a little teaser, this huge 30-foot wall of incredible multimedia video and photos and, and music or background ocean sounds. It's really, really cool. It'll immerse you in the ocean if you need it. So um, check that out, museumca.org. I'll be talking a lot more about
about that in the future. Also, I just want to let you know, Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. We're part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1, you can turn it, tune into KWMR to learn about a topic of environmental focus. And the Ocean Currents show has a podcast, so you can either find that in iTunes or go to cordellbank.noaa.gov to get the past episodes hear all the past Ocean Currents shows. So take care and have a great month. Enjoy this lo- these last few days of sunny weather here in the Point Reyes area. Our next month, I'll be back with Dr. Bill Coughlin, who is a biological oceanographer, and we're going to talk about some fascinating phytoplankton. We're the most influential microorganisms in the ocean and on our planet, so we'll hear a lot more about those tiny things. We're going from the giant blue whales to the tiny little plankton. It all matters. So thanks again for tuning in, and we'll be back next month with Ocean Currents. Thanks for listening to KWMR. Just roll on deep and dark blue ocean blue listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.